Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyperpartisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Amina Keshton Kamel, and you're listening to Legal Ease. This episode on achieving criminal justice, forensic evidence reform, will be introduced by my guest co-host today, ASU Law Professor Valina Beattie, whose incredible bio you can find on our website. So Valina, I'll be handing this over to you now. Thank you, Amina. Uh, I'm Valina Beattie. I'm a law professor at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and I'm also the deputy director of our Academy for Justice there. Uh, The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center that aims to connect research with policy reform and share expert voices like the ones we will be hearing today. Uh, And today on this podcast, we'll hear from leaders in forensic evidence reform. They'll be discussing the problem of faulty forensic evidence in criminal cases, the importance of independent forensic crime labs to combat wrongful convictions, and new legislation in Arizona for people currently incarcerated to challenge faulty forensic evidence that was used against them at trial. We're fortunate to be joined today by Professor Brandon Garrett, who is the director of the Wilson Center for Science and Justice at Duke School of Law, Professor Sandra Guerra-Thompson at the University of Houston Law Center, who is also a former board member of the Houston Forensic Science Center, and Arizona Justice Project Director Lindsay Herf. You can find their full biographies on LegallysePodcast.com. And thank you all for being here. So in our nation, every news cycle, we have stories and reporting of police violence and concerns about the criminal legal system. How do each of you see forensic evidence connecting with these issues? I think we're all really familiar now with the uh, concern that we have over-policing and over-incarceration in this country and forensic evidence plays a role in that in a lot of ways that are kind of surprising, maybe. You know, the defenders of police say, you know, we need law enforcement to solve serious crimes. We've had a spate of shootings in this country during the pandemic. But how do you solve serious crimes? How do you solve shootings? It's particularly important that actually non-police be involved. Serious crime laboratories, you need to bring in the scientists, really. Um, And so it's kind of a cross-cutting problem where if we want policing to focus on core crime solving, well, we need to bring in more scientists, actually, and and not uh, what what Sandy has labeled well as cops in in lab coats. But there are lots of other facets to this. There are lots of questions about how we get crime lab work right. And there have been terrible wrongful convictions in this country when forensic science has gone wrong. We all as a country just watched battles of the experts in the Chauvin trial, where you had uh, real concerns that junk science was introduced uh, and when there are questions about the postmortem done by the medical examiner, was there a bias in, in that work? There's been high profile re- work recently on cognitive bias in medical examiners. And so, 
you know, there's a lot that we need to get right from top to bottom in forensics. And it really reflects the ways in which we need to rethink policing from policing to the courtroom. We need to rethink forensics from from the crime scene to the lab to the courtroom as well. Yeah, sure. And I would I would just add that, uh, you know, in the investigative side, as as Brandon was noting, uh, you know, there's this question about whether the investigation is is really independent. And it's especially an acute problem when the person involved in the incident is law enforcement and then the individuals collecting the scientific evidence and investigating the case from a scientific perspective, if they are also law enforcement, then you have an inherent conflict of interest um, in that that process. And, And it's one that surprisingly people haven't really talked about in relation to uh, the questions about excessive use of force. And it's it's surprising. It's one that we we did address in Houston. And, you know, we could we can talk more about it. But it, it seems to me um, that if we're going to get the science right, we have to have the right people doing it, as Brandon says. You know, it wasn't that long ago that police departments, that body cams were a new thing on police and that they weren't a regular budgetary item. And it, you know, a lot of police departments, including large ones like here in Phoenix, Arizona, you know, maybe there's a grant we could get to buy some of our officers' body cams. And now we see just the incredible value from those body cams. And, and, and that is forensic evidence, you know, looking back at a video of what occurred is forensic evidence and, and how it's changed you know, really getting truth in so many of these um, incidents involving, you know, law enforcement and shootings or other, um, not necessarily shootings, I guess, but um, interactions with law enforcement and, and people that are being arrested and sometimes killed. Professor Garrett, you've recently authored a new book, Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics. Could you tell us briefly what that's about? Sure. It relates to everything we've just been talking about. The idea is to walk through each of the ways forensics can go wrong from crime scene, from the collection of the evidence, sometimes by really untrained officers that don't have the tools they need to notch it or contaminate the evidence uh, to the lab, if there is one, um, where you're worried about cognitive bias, you need to worry about whether the method itself has been validated. You need to know how proficient the particular expert is. How good is is this person at reaching the judgment calls they reach to uh, make conclusions that could put someone away for the rest of their life? And then to the the courtroom, where we have problems with overstatement of testimony, and uh, I left out quality control at the labs themselves. Uh, And and then the book talks about the ways that we can get quality control right, the ways we can test the experts, test the methods. Uh, We need to be testing forensics so we know how good it is. And unfortunately, it's been a real slog. And uh, despite some movement by judges, although not much, despite some Herculean efforts by the scientific community, and despite some really model work, particularly at the Houston lab, to show how it can be done, we still are somewhat in the dark ages where there's so much more science and quality control. When you get a COVID test or a strep test at any clinical lab, and on the flip side, if it's a crime lab and not a clinical lab, well, then you're in the dark ages. Then no one knows anything about Uh, what is the uncertainty associated with this result? How reliable is it? What can we tell the lawyers and the jurors about how reliable it is? I don't know. It's just a match. And we've been talking about matches for 100 years, and we call them when we see them. 
And that's, that's, that's just kind of embarrassing in this day and age that that's where we are in criminal cases. So that's, that's the book. We, we talked a lot about the stories of people whose lives have been affected by forensics gone wrong, and also the people whose lives have been changed by forensics gone right. And as part of kind of the new, the new renegades that are trying to push the, the controversial idea that there should be real science in our criminal courtrooms. Well, and nine years ago, you published another book uh, on wrongful convictions, convicting the innocent where criminal prosecutions go wrong. And it was actually 12 years ago that the National Academy of Sciences published their seminal report uh, on forensics, strengthening forensic science in the United States, a path forward. Uh, so we have had attention to this and particularly the intersection between wrongful convictions and faulty forensics for uh, quite a while. Um, has this problem changed since then? Are there new problems or are we really just addressing the same problems from 10 years ago? Yeah, you know, it was, it was, and it was an invitation from the National Academy of Sciences that actually pushed me down the road towards uh, doing a systematic study of what happened in the DNA exonerees trials that led to my first book, Convicting the Innocent. Um, and so that book began with a really, really detailed long report to the academies on the forensic testimony in the first, I think at that point, it was like the first 180 DNA exonerees. And that National Academy of Sciences report was really eye-opening for the profession. And yet, given all, all the serious systematic problems they identified with forensics, they actually missed a bunch. And our understanding has actually grown in the years since, for example, regarding cognitive bias. There's very little in that report on cognitive bias. There's very little in that report about the problems at crime scenes, although they sort of noted that, yeah, that's an issue too. There was almost nothing there about how little we know about proficiency of experts, that if you have a technique that's subjective, it really matters. How good is this expert? even if the method is good. Uh, and, uh, you know, the 2016 White House PCAST report really highlighted that. We've learned a lot more since then about uh, what do jurors think of this stuff when cases do go to trial and, and lawyers too. Um, I've done a lot of work surveying mock jurors and also lawyers about their misconceptions about forensics. And so we know, know a lot more about how to address those misconceptions, which I think is also important. Uh, so, you know, I guess the footprint of these problems has, has really deepened over the last 15 years, it just gets worse and worse. And there have been some good things because we actually have some error rate information, for example, on some of these disciplines. So we know a little bit more about how often some of these forensic techniques go wrong. We have a little bit more of a foothold in terms of what we need to do to address these problems. And so, you know, thing, things have improved in some ways and we have these toeholds and a sense of of what the solutions are, you know, nothing like what the Houston Forensic Science Center was doing existed in 2009 when the National Academy of Sciences report came out. Now we know that this kind of quality control work can be done at scale across one of the biggest labs in the country. So there's, there is actually quite a bit that's changed and some of it is like new warning signs and, and new really troubling news about uh, the the gap in forensics, and, and we also know a lot more about how to get it right. Thank you for that. So, Professor Thompson, you have served on the board of one of the first independent forensic crime labs in the country, the Houston Forensic Science Center. You have also written a book on forensics, Cops in Lab Coats, Curbing Wrongful Convictions Through Independent Forensic Laboratories. As an independent lab, how is the Houston Forensic Science Center different from other crime labs, and why does that matter? Oh, thanks for the question. Yeah, so the Houston lab, uh, you know, started out as the Houston Police Department crime lab. 
And that lab had, um, you know, from 2002 until we started this project to make the lab an independent agency, which was about 2013, that whole history was really terrible. And in fact, the HPD crime lab was even uh, featured a little too prominently in the National Academy of Sciences uh, report that that Valina was mentioning. And it became a, a real embarrassment for the city of Houston. And so the decision was made, and I have to credit the HPD executive staff because the, the idea really emanated from them that maybe we ought to make this lab independent. A board was uh, appointed. I I was on the board from the beginning. And what makes this lab unique is not just that it's independent. There are going to be a lot of medical examiner's offices and some other labs around the country that will tell you, well, we're independent. We've always been independent. But that's not, that's not uh, a panacea. Uh, what makes this lab, I think, uh, special is that its organizational structure is a combination of corporate and public. So it's what's called a local government corporation, and it's 100% public in terms of its funding, although it's also a, um, a 501c3, so it can, it can raise money and it can get grant money. But it's a public entity that has a corporate structure. So the board of directors runs the lab. And the board of directors is an unpaid bunch of community you know, interested parties, inter- you know, people who just have an interest in the subject, whether uh, from a legal perspective, a medical perspective, uh, other academics. And the board then oversees the the president and CEO of the organization in the same way that they would uh, in, in a corporation. And that that structure has proven to be so effective at creating an, an a organization that is responsive to the concerns and the values um, articulated by the board. And so, we, for example, the board from, the, from day one said, this will be a transparent organization. And, you know, I don't care how independent your medical examiner's office is, it's probably not very independent, or sorry, uh, transparent. And, you know, you're probably not going to get much information from their websites or from any other source. Whereas this lab has practiced something that they call radical transparency. So they not only will give you all of their stats and what have you, uh, including financial and backlogs, um, but they'll also push out press releases and notices to the district attorney and the public defense defender's office and the d- defense bar when there's a problem in the lab. They'll push that out to the media to say, we just had to fire this analyst because she didn't follow proper procedures and we're conducting an investigation and we're going to review her past cases. And talk about, you know, gaining the public trust. Uh, It's been huge. And the other area is quality, which I could talk all day about. But in terms of quality, that, of course, was also top priority for the board. And that's why they're doing some of the most cutting edge quality control in the world. Um, And, uh, and, 
and become, by the way, uh, through systematic uh, through a systematic process, become highly efficient um, because reducing backlogs was also a major priority for the board. So we we kind of wanted it all, and when you uh, when you give scientists the mandate to do good science and hire good people and do it, you know, get the right answer at the right time, they respond. They're amazing. They're brilliant. And I know I've talked with uh, some of our leaders in Arizona about adopting some of the um, protocols that you have uh, at the Houston Forensic Science Center and particularly this lead in uh, what you said, radical transparency. Yes, we've had two uh, individuals on the board now, and I believe actually there's a third. Uh, so uh, we've had an exoneree on the board the entire time. Um, when when I served, I, I served with two different exonerees, um, and they they have a very important voice, you know, in, in, uh, again, in just um, reminding people, reminding the people who work in the lab about the importance of what they're doing for the justice system. But that's another thing, you know, that's another sort of philosophical uh, or, or, you know, value that the board brought was to say, to say to the analysts, you don't work for law enforcement anymore. You work for the justice system as a whole. Um, the entire community, and especially someone who's innocent, who's wrongly accused. Uh, for them, it's so critical that the science is right. Do you see these independent labs as a piece in decreasing or reversing wrongful convictions? Well, it certainly can be. I mean, what you need is a high-functioning lab, and a lab, again, where, that, where analysts have the, the freedom to pursue justice. And so, you know, for example, in Houston, like I said, they've systematically, you know, studied their processes, the way that a manufacturing plant would try to create very efficient processes. And as a result, uh, you know, it used to be the case in Houston that it could take hundreds of days to get a drug test done. The lab today gets them done in six to seven days. And so the the result is no backlog generally in, uh, you know, unless you have a major storm that slows things down or something like that. But normally they have really no backlog in, uh, in controlled substances. And so the, um, the folks at the lab said, you know, we've got all these drugs where people have already pled guilty and um, under the law, we can just destroy them. But they were brought to us by the police for testing. So let's test them. We have the capacity. Let's just, Let's just test it. And it, it created this very interesting natural experiment because what happened is they discovered 298 cases where people had pled guilty and those convictions weren't right. I mean, not in some cases, it was a controlled substance, but it was a different su controlled substance or it was the wrong weight, which has ramifications for sentencing or it just wasn't a drug at all. And people had pled guilty to felonies, which, you know, uh, you know, sort of leads me to another subject that, that Professor Garrett and I are working on, which is the pretrial system, the bail system, and how these people pled guilty because they couldn't get out of jail because they were charged with felonies and the bail was set too high. Uh, and so they... They felt compelled, literally compelled, uh, to 
plead guilty to felonies that they knew perfectly well they hadn't committed. So a high-functioning lab, a lab where it's okay to disclose this kind of information, right, where it's not a problem to your boss, uh, where they're not going to say, why are you wasting resources? Because those cases already are over and you can just destroy the drugs. You know, that's the kind of lab that this is. And and I think uh, what's striking to me is that the reason for these wrongful arrests um, is it goes back to the field drug tests being used by the by police and it wasn't just in Houston they were using them all over the country so where are the other exonerations they're not anywhere to be found that's an Why? excellent point <laughs> yeah and it goes to this question we started with about policing like we don't want police doing forensics out of some unreliable box in the field. Like we want evidence to be sent to scientists in a lab under proper conditions. And there's been this push to do field DNA testing, field drug testing, get things done cheap and dirty out in the field. And, and there are horrible, tragic uh, consequences. And they often get buried because so many people plead guilty. And so no one looks at the one page report generated, whether it's by a subpar police lab that isn't independent or one of these boxes. You know, defense lawyers don't have the resources to challenge. Someone's languishing in jail. They just want to get out. They plead to all kinds of things they didn't do. There's progress being made in some state legislators. Director Herf, can you tell us about the new forensics legislation passed in Arizona? Sure, yes. This session, a bill was passed called Senate Bill 1469, which takes the next step in post-conviction um, efforts in seeking access to evidence to do more up-to-date scientific testing. Going back 20 years in Arizona and in, in, in many other states, you know, had already passed similar statutes, um, but what was what's called a post-conviction DNA testing statute came into, into being here in Arizona. Um, and this was at a time, you know, this, the statute was passed in 2000, and we all might recall that in the mid-90s and into late-90s is when DNA testing started coming into courts. And that's also the time where some of the first DNA exonerations also started to occur. And prior to that, you know, there were individuals had been convicted on blood group testing or some, some type of other um, form to look at what it could be DNA test or DNA evidence like blood or semen or saliva. But DNA testing, you know, and as specific as it can be, wasn't, you know, was just entering the criminal justice system. So 20 years ago, Arizona passed a post-conviction DNA testing statute. And what that did was allow individuals who had been convicted to seek DNA testing of evidence in their case that could show somebody else committed the crime, that it wasn't their DNA on the rape kit or the blood on the door, you know, of the apartment that was robbed, and, and rather that that DNA may lead to someone else. And that statute's been around for 20 years. Arizona's had three individuals who have been exonerated from DNA testing, but there's other forensics and other disciplines that continue to advance. And, you know, if we look at the world of medicine and how we treated cancer, you know, 20 years ago, there are developments and there's, you know, better science and better ways to, to deal with that. And in, in the criminal justice world, once a conviction occurs, you know, we don't, the system is not set up to look back. 
Um, so forensic science that, you know, continues to develop, continues to get more specific, even something like fingerprint evidence. You know, there are different ways to do digital, to do imaging. Fingerprint evidence now. There's different software technique techniques that are more precise than what you know uh, investigators and crime lab analysts did 20, 25 years ago. So there is more specific and better technology out there. So what this bill seeks to do is two things. One is to allow individuals in the post-conviction setting to seek analysis, scientific analysis of evidence that was not previously available at the time of their trial in addition to DNA. Um, and the second thing it seeks to do is utilize the databases that exist, that law enforcement use every day to try to solve crimes, not just the DNA database, but there are fingerprint or APHIS databases. There is a database of firearms evidence. Um, and and how why that is important is because sometimes there you know is a crime scene where latent print evidence or fingerprint evidence is collected, and you know there's reason to believe that that fingerprint evidence was from the perpetrator, and then there's a suspect and that person is booked and his or her fingerprints are taken and they're not the same fingerprints that were at the scene of the crime. And so the fingerprints from the crime scene are often then forgotten about. They're not put into a database. You know, they're not really looked at. Um, and those unidentified prints, if those do belong to the true perpetrator, could later be identified, you know, with the, the additional prints that we have in systems, the better technology that we have. And so the second thing that this statute does is seek is to allow an individual to seek um, an upload and a search of forensic evidence into one of the databases that was previously unidentifiable, but now could be could could be identified. So how were you able to develop or reach consensus of support in the state legislature across the, um, the divide? Well, no one wants an innocent person in prison, right? Um, it's getting to that point, to recognizing the innocence. Um, so, and, you know, as we had discussions with lawmakers, Ray Crone, who's an Arizona exoneree, his case was pivotal in explaining why this was so important. He was a DNA exoneree. He was the hundredth person to be exonerated who had been sentenced to death in this country. And there were latent, there were fingerprints from the men's bathroom in his case that existed at the time of trial that were not Ray's and had never really been searched. And had those fingerprints been uploaded, the true perpetrator in, in that case that Ray was convicted of um, and then later exonerated, they, he would have been found from the get-go because that man had a prior convictions in sexual history and he was in the database. He was in the state database. He was probably in the FBI database as well because he had served time in prison. And it just, they didn't look for it. So it was a wrongful conviction, one, that could have been avoided. Two, the evidence had always been there. You know, it just was bypassed because police and then the prosecutor assigned to the case got so fixated on Mr. Crone. So so that was a nice case to be able to use to show lawmakers, you know, how important, you know, advancements in science and also use of databases can be to, you know, identify and exonerate the innocent. The bill sponsor who, who ran the bill, uh, Senator Warren Peterson, who is the Senate Judiciary Chair this year, he went to law school later in life. And just a couple years ago, he, he was at ASU Law School and he did his last clinical um, semester with 
with our kind of sister project, the post-conviction clinic. And he learned about, you know, what happens in the post-conviction world. And he learned about forensic evidence. And when he was at, in the clinic, we were working on a statewide review of hair microscopy cases in Arizona. And so he really understood, you know, the whole, I think, value of, of utilizing better forensics in older cases and how that can get to the truth. We've had cases of innocent people who for years tried to get access to do a search to see, well, who do those prints belong to? And whether it's the DNA data bank or these databases have been closed off. They've been closed off to researchers too. So all these concerns about how reliable their algorithms are and why is it that so often they don't turn up even as a candidate, you know, material like prints that belong to the person we later find out was the culprit. These companies are all, are for profit and even the crime labs themselves don't really know how the algorithms work and can't explain, you know, why they turn up some candidates and others and why we have a free-for-all where companies can profit off of algorithms they use in our criminal justice system and defense lawyers don't have access. Government itself doesn't know how good the algorithms are or the databases. I mean, it's just, it's just a national scandal. Uh, some jurisdictions have started to step in and say, Face recognition, if we don't know how well it works, there's a lot of evidence that it can be highly unreliable and racially biased, then we shouldn't be using it. Well, we haven't done that for these databases. And they've been, you know, for profit, they've been run by law enforcement. They haven't been good for labs. They haven't been good for justice. And, you know, we need more legislation like this at the state and federal level to step in where forensics in general have been so unregulated for so long. Yeah, and one thing I should say, because Brandon's right, that these databases are so closed off to defendants, and and even in the pretrial stage, I think it's difficult sometimes to, for for a defense lawyer to have a lab, you know, run prints and give you know the list of potential suspects and all of that, and this this bill creates a legal avenue to seek that, but there's still going to be the role of the judge as the gatekeeper deciding whether or not he or her is going to allow that to happen. And there's still the prosecution that can object and can fight vigorously against allowing a defendant to, you know, access the evidence. Um, so it, it by no means opens the doors to database searches as needed, but it does create a, a legal avenue to try to get there. Yeah, I could tell you another little story too. Like for an independent lab, it's a challenge because the databases Lindsay's talking about are federal, right? The CODIS and APHIS. Uh, these are federal databases for firearms, latent prints, and and DNA, and uh, they're all controlled by the FBI, um, which will only allow them to be used by law, like criminal justice agencies um, is the term. And uh, so the Houston lab actually ran into some issues because one of the things the board wanted to do was to open the lab up for the defense um, to allow defense attorneys to request testing of, of evidence, um, and, you know, or retesting of evidence and the like. Uh, and, and it, you know, it could be defense attorneys from other cities, even like where there's not a conflict. But we ran into obstacles with that proposal because uh, of the designation of the lab. It, it had to have a law enforcement um, clientele, if you will. Uh, and uh, I, I think you know we're we're working through some of those issues. And uh, but but you know this has been the uh, this has been they've been very proprietary about these databases and and not wanting to allow their legitimate use by any other parties wow well thank you so much for outlining 
all of this for our audiences. I feel like they're going to learn so much. I know I learned so much. Um, so we're rounding out at the the end of our podcast with the last set of questions. How does this legislation compare with junk science writs in California and Texas? I think it's a little bit different because it it this legislation essentially creates an avenue to develop what could be useful evidence for a person to use to seek overturning their conviction. My understanding of the junk science writs in California and Texas are, are a legal hook um, separate from kind of what, what this legislation does, a legal hook um, into, into um, having a court review a conviction for what was you know, presented at trial and, and is shown to be unreliable science. And Professor Thompson, could you explain a bit more about the junk science writs or the change science writs, um, and particularly whether you've seen them to be effective in Texas since they were created about six, seven years ago? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it was interesting. At first, we weren't sure it was going to be very effective because we weren't seeing a lot of cases where they were being, where the that particular writ was being used. Uh, but since then, uh, there have been more and more cases. And they're not all, you know, junk science is maybe not the right, you know, label for this. As you say, change science is better because it's not that the science was ever junk. It was, it may have been the best knowledge we had at the time, but over time we've learned more. And, and one of the challenges here, or, you know, a, a major challenge is that with cases like this, you have to have the kind of lawyers who know how to bring a habeas case, right? It's a very specialized field of law. And then they have to have enough of a clue about the science and how that gets presented as well. Um, so, you know, structurally in the legal system, I think that's been something of an obstacle. But in, in Texas, the legislature also created a, an office to specialize in that, to have public uh, attorneys available uh, for defendants statewide um, who are specialists in both of those fields. And so we're starting to see more cases. And they're not just cases coming out of crime labs, like where the evidence is coming out of a crime lab, but just medical evidence that is used, for example, in, in child abuse cases. I feel like one depressing initial trend that you saw in some of these early forensic risk cases is that they would only grant relief when the expert, him or herself, reverse their prior finding and said, oh, actually, I was I, 20 years ago, I was totally wrong. The science has changed. It shouldn't take the expert recanting for a court to say, oh, there, there, maybe there was a problem with the science 20 years ago when there was never any research to support what was done then. Anyway, uh, it shouldn't take the expert. I mean, how often will the ex do people say, wow, I was completely wrong when the stakes were quite high and I testified on the stand and what I said was, was unsupported by science and, oh, I'm sorry. Um, and so, you know, I feel like the courts are getting more comfortable with the idea that really science is evolves and there is new research and and it doesn't necessarily reflect badly if judges take advantage of the new scientific research and revisit things. It's not, you know, um, it's actually a positive thing to acknowledge error and to, and to acknowledge new research and to call into question research that wasn't there in the past. But it's, it, you know, the first couple of years of rulings that we got under some of these statutes really weren't that impressive, even if there were some victories. And I feel like it is slowly getting better. So should we call it 
change science writs because I want to make sure I have everyone's blessing here. Is that what I, we should be calling instead of junk science writs? I mean, it, they're usually called junk science writs, but I, you know, like I said, I don't think it's as accurate as just okay. calling it change science. Change science. All right, I'm I'm on board for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds frankly, good to me. frankly, it should just be science writs because science does right. science, science writs. It's yeah. The people refer to it at junk as junk science writs, and do. I'm wondering. I'm wondering where that even came from, because um, it sounds like everyone's shaking their head no here, and it should just be science writs. I find that well, there, fascinating. There is there is junk science. I mean, you know, you right. can you can have like traditional arson techniques being offered, you know, to convict, um, you know, someone of murder, and then years later that had absolutely no basis in science. But other times, like I say, it's not that the science was junk, it's just that it was not fully developed and and yeah. now we have a different understanding. We also want, we don't want the impression to be that, oh, the entire field has to be total junk. Yes. You know, it's- <laughs> That's what uh, I was thinking too. But you know, for example, fun. like, you know, there are so many unreliable uses of hair evidence and the FBI conducted a huge audit into thousands of old cases and found that there was improper science in the vast bulk of them. But, you know, if someone finds a long blonde hair at a crime scene, you can pretty definitively say it didn't come from me with my, like, graying hair. <laughs> like, there, there are uses, e even with bite mark, you know, if you have someone who doesn't have teeth, then the chances that they bit someone are pretty low. Like, you can exclude people. There, there are some uses of techniques and, that are good, and there can, can and sometimes techniques have very few good uses, but sometimes they really do have validated uses and uses that are invalidated, or the expert said things or applied the technique in a really problematic way. And so we don't want to imply that, you know, well, once once there are some good uses for a technique, then you can let the person in to say anything they want. And we also don't want to imply that if there's a technique that has great problems, there aren't some limited uses that can be really valuable. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. Well, before we wrap up this episode, does anyone have any additional thoughts? I think we're good. All right, Valina, I will let you close out this episode. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, all of our guests, for joining us today on this important topic at discussing forensic evidence reform. It sounds like we have some pathways going forward uh, and also a lot to catch up on to, as Brandon said, get out of the dark ages. Uh, so thank you again to all of you for joining us today on this episode. Yes, thank you so much, each of you, for your time. Thank you.